Hey there, Three Song Stories listener. Just a quick heads up. Today's guest's third song has some adult-style lyrics. So if that matters to you, either skip that one or you can always just listen to the podcast version of the show on iTunes or NPR One that has the shortened versions of the songs. One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the place where music meets memory and storytelling ensues. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. My guest today is Justin Anderson. Justin's a third-generation Fort Myers native. He's the son of the late and honorable Judge Isaac Anderson, Jr. and Audrea Anderson, who played a key role in the foundation and formation of Florida Gulf Coast University, where we record this show. Justin graduated from Fort Myers High School in 1996. He then earned English Literature and Women and Gender Studies degrees at Princeton University. He also got a degree in American Studies from Florida State University and his law degree from University of Florida. Justin spent the first 15 years of his career in secondary education as an English teacher, administrator, and coach. He's lived all over the U.S., as well as South Africa, and most recently in China. He's currently living back in Fort Myers, running a consulting business. Well, I didn't know Justin in school. I, too, went to Fort Myers High, but he was more than four years behind me. He does come highly recommended as a Three Song Stories guest from one of my previous victims, Amy Ware. After her episode, she was like, you got to get Justin Anderson on the show. So here we go. Hey there, Justin Anderson. I'm glad I can make you laugh with the opener. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. Great uh, to be here. Thank you. Cool. Um, what was the musical background of your childhood? Oh, man. The musical background of my childhood, oddly enough, was AM radio. Um, when I was very, very, very young, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about their childhood with um, – you know, the, the, that big, huge, like, armoire-looking piece of a radio yeah, on the turntable. Yeah. Like, my grandmother had one of those in South Carolina. Um, and, you know, they'd talk about listening to gospel music or talk about listening to blues or jazz or something. My mother, um, while she was raised in that uh, – um, in South Carolina – you know, here in Florida growing up, you know, you, you had the radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, back in the early 80s, you know, the FM had the great rock and roll stations and stuff. But my mom, being a, a good Christian woman, said no. Rock and roll is the devil's music. <laughs> um, now, I, I will say I, I don't believe my mother, you know, truly believes that. I think she was trying to – She was know, trying to buffer. Yeah, yeah. trying to buffer her children <laughs> from being exposed to – so we listened to a lot of AM stuff. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I man – uh, America, Kansas, I mean, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, I mean, I, stuff comes, I, I kid you not, like people look at me because mm-hmm. I know all the words to bread, you know, and they're just like, <laughs> you're the serious person who's brought up bread. Last time I was like, I don't even know who bread is, but now I do because of a previous guest. This is great. <laughs> exactly. They're one of those groups, you know, but you don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, That's yeah, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so there was no, um, or was there any records spinning around the house or anything like that? You know, my, my mom's younger sister, Angela, my aunt Angela, uh, who a lot of, um, she's back in South Carolina, but she grew up, she kind of grew up with me because, you know, she was the youngest of eight kids, but she was only about 16 years older than me. So she went to Cypress Lake High when I was born. Um, so she kind of took care of – because, you know, my mom, career woman, working, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, was over at Edison Community College, now Florida Southwestern. I was a um, student there when she was a teacher there, by the really? way. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, See, my this roots is, are deep. <laughs> the funny thing is that because she – you know, she taught in the 70s. 
she did administration for most of the 80s, but then she taught again in the 90s. Yeah. So she'll, I'll be with her in public and she'll get this weird mix of, and you know, because it's community college, you could, you could be a 40 year old in her class in 1975. Yeah, yeah. Or you could be a 45 year old in her class in 1992. Yeah. And so now, you know, she gets, all different kinds of ages of people. Hey, I was in your class, and it's always funny to watch her try to try to piece them together. But uh, but no, my aunt always played a lot of gospel music. Um, you know, she was very religious. So she played gospel music when she would have us. You know, cleaning the house when she was babysitting for us and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. So. What's the earliest musical memory you can recall, or the first thing that flashes into your brain when I ask that question? Um, five, being five years old and getting a set of drums for my birthday from Heather Harsh and my dad, quote unquote, accidentally stepping on them in the middle of the night. I believe this was not an accident. This was a conspiracy. Uh, because, like stepping on destroying? Yeah, yeah. Like he stepped on <laughs> He claims, oh, you left your toys out. You know, I went to get a drink of water in the middle of the night and I accidentally stepped on them. You know, typical story. And, you know, as a kid, I'm sure I believed it. But now as an adult, when I think back to somebody giving a five-year-old a drum set as a present, I mean, my God, that's, that's, that's kind of torturous, you know? Did you uh, play musical instruments at all in your life? I did. I, uh, my mother steered me away from the drums. In middle school, I played trumpet. Uh, so in, Fort Myers uh, Middle? Fort Myers Middle. Go Ripples. Um, yeah, Go Ripples. <laughs> M- Mr. Hansen, the, the, the band director, who's, who uh, he might still be the band director. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you remember the first time that music moved you? Yes. And, you know, one of the songs that I was going to put on, on, on my list, um, and I, 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 it was interesting. I took it off. It, this, was, this list was very difficult to make. Mm-hmm. Um, You're not alone, Justin. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, for, for me as a kid, like I said, my mom is from South Carolina. My dad grew up here, you know, in Fort Myers. Um, so, you know, I grew up Christmas and summers going to South Carolina to stay at my grandmother's house. And so, you know, that's a 700-mile drive. And, um, you know, we would listen to tapes in the radio and um, – not the radio, but tapes. And we always listen to, like, oldies tapes, you know, the ones you get for, like, four ninety or used to get for, like, four ninety nine yeah, yeah. at the gas station. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so it was, like, greatest hits of, like, 1966, um, greatest hits of 1968 R&B. So we're talking a great mix of R&B but also rock and roll. So um, Hugh Masekela's Grazing in the Grass was on one of those tapes. And oh, man, like that, it just, you know, it's an instrumental. And you don't really, as a kid, you know, an eight, nine-year-old kid, you don't really get into instrumentals. But that really spoke to me. And that actually helped my mother convince me to, to play trumpet in middle school. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that song for sure. Did you ever make mixtapes? Definitely. I mean, who, you know. As a kid in the 90s, how can you not, you know, listen up, millennials. I mean, you had to – this was – life was rough. You had to have your, your radio on your boombox and you had to have your blank tape in the cassette player ready yep. so that the so that when you heard the lead-in for a good song uh, yeah. and you had to wait for the DJ to stop talking to hit record to get – I mean, oh, man. Like, I mean, the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making a good mixtape. Do you ever uh, give away a mixtape or get a mixtape? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know what they do now. I, I, you know, you, you tag friends and certain songs you like or whatever. But well, and I think, I guess they make playlists now, yeah, like Spotify not, playlists or something. It's not the same, easy. right? It's too, I mean, yeah, I get it. You're thinking about that person or whatever. Yeah, but, but before, like you said, it was so mechanical. Oh, the effort. And, the and, effort. The, and the writing, the, the tracks on yes. the, on the little insert and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, in those days, you actually, I, I looked forward to reading like, Liner notes. Yeah, yeah, I really yeah. did. I really did. I mean, you 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 learned a lot about um, you know. Obviously, the music business has changed because of technology for good and bad reasons. I think overall for good because of access yeah. to a wider audience um, and access for art artists. Uh, you don't have to be controlled by the big corporate machine. But but that big corporate machine was really good about promoting those artists and letting you know, get to know those artists in a way that they wanted you to. That way you became not just a fan of like that particular song but of the music. So like I think what's interesting about the three songs that I have and I actually listened last night to the the albums that they're on. Uh I find it emblematic that each of those songs are on albums that I can just play, just put on play and just let it just let it run. That's actually one of my questions that I was going to ask later. So, you know, how many albums or which is – what is the album that you can always listen to straight through? And all three of your song choices today come from albums like that? They do. Um, But I think that they do and that's because of what we were just talking about, that era, you know, the 80s and 90s of music making. But for me – this is going to sound weird. I actually don't listen to those albums very regularly. Those songs, though, I will I will listen to. But in terms of, um, you know, like an album that I, I I would just put in, it you know, it kind of depends on you know the artist's mood. Um, you know, most recently, uh, my my music tastes are eclectic. <laughs> um, so most recently, I've been into um, electronica. So mm-hmm. anything by Cut Copy, um, Neon Indian. Um, who I actually got to see Neon Indian in Beijing, which was really awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, other groups like Chromio and, and stuff like that. Like some of their albums, like totally I can put in start to finish. But, you know, um, Chicago, like that's another great group. What a great pivot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I told you, eclectic. I'm just like, oh. When you, when you played these albums uh, through last night, were they on CDs or what? how do you listen to your music? And when was Spotify. last? Spotify. Yeah. So I, yeah, when was the everything... last time you bought physically form music? The last time I oh, – wow. That's a great question. Oh, man. The last time I bought Not recently. a piece <laughs> of music in physical form that was just music would have been in 2009. And the reason why I remember this is because I was living in um, South Africa at the time. So, you know, it, it – Music portability was an issue and so it was kind of like if you wanted something, you, you know, you still kind of – I mean in South Africa in 2009 was definitely farther behind us. So, yeah, yeah. You were you know, not, you're buying CDs. Yeah, you're yeah, not. yeah. <laughs> what was the album? Yeah. Would you remember? Yeah. Uh, it, honestly, no because at that point I was just trying to entertain myself. I mean I would just go to the mall what and I would get. buy anything I could find musically and then I would buy DVDs of – Anything and just w- literally watch anything because we were in a cottage. Um, this is when I was doing um, summer or study abroad in law school at UF. They have a wonderful program hmm. um, connected to, to uh, Cape Town. Um, and uh, 
we didn't the only the the TV in the cottage we had the owners because you know Europeans this is like their summer cottage so they turn off their cable so all we had was you know I guess South Africa's version of PBS right which was cool but because South Africa has like eleven official languages. Only about twenty percent of the yeah, time, yeah, wasn't totally it was in accessible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So half the time, it's kind of like, what, 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 what? Oh, something's on in English. You know? <laughs> okay, well, let's get to your first song. What do you have for us? Mm. So um, the first song is Billy Ocean, uh, "When the Going Gets Tough." Uh, you know, this is this is. I, I went in a chronological order okay. uh, in terms of um, obviously when the songs came out, but also I guess in my my maturation process, this um, person, music taste, whatever. But also, I think what's interesting is that it's, you know, the songs start from when I was about, you know, probably seven or eight years old until I'm 16. Um, and, and this is something that I have been aware of since college. And, and I would talk to my friends about this in, 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 in conversations about, you know, do we allow ourselves – to have our tastes evolve as we get older or do we stick to that same core you know group of, of, of music for the rest of our lives and then also let's look at how does you know um, technology influence us and this is something this is something I've carried that conversation on to my students um, when I taught high school and I would you know I'd explain to them because these are children that have grown up in a time where you know they've always had instant access to music correct they've always you know it's always been digital. They know what a CD is, but they've never really used one, and they don't own any. I still have in my closet my my magazines, yeah, yeah, your, CDs, your, your books. My, yeah, exactly. Um, and I asked them. I said, you know, or I, I described to them things that we experience, that collective experience. You know, when um, there's a song, say, in a popular movie or in a popular television commercial. A great example of this was when I was in college, and Mazda had their commercial we were all watching a group of us were watching a Super Bowl. It's about fifty of us in a room. And you know, this is you know, Princeton University. We're from everywhere, literally around the world. Yeah, yeah. And Mazda used Crazy Train for the soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And without fail, everybody in the room on cue, I, I Yeah, I. yeah, yeah. And we all looked at each other like Really? Collect, collective <laughs> consciousness. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And when I describe that to teenagers today, they're like First of all, what is I, I – oh, okay, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave that for another discussion. But they – while I said it, I think it's a great thing that there's wider access to music and artists have ha, – don't have to be bound by the corporate overlords of mm-hmm, music. Mm-hmm. But we've lost that con- collective consciousness. And that sort of real-timeness of some of it too oh, yeah. in a way. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, let's hear this song. This is uh, When the Going Gets Tough by Billy Ocean from his 1986 album Love Zone. It's Justin Anderson's first song today on this episode of Three Songs. Okay, so where does that take you? Because it takes me to eighth grade dance at Fort Myers Middle School. <laughs> what about you? What, what is the uh, crystallization of that song and a memory that comes together? Um, honestly, the weird thing about this song, it takes me in a lot of different places because to me, like this song and the biggest reason why I picked this song is because it is a representation of what made songs in the 80s awesome. It mm-hmm. had like everything from, you know, call and response, you know, those amazing backup singers, you know, you've got the saxophone in there. Yeah, yeah. You've got um, 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 that synthesizer going. I mean, it just – 
It's like an 80s anthem. Um, I was going to say it is it's de- definitely anthemic. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I mean, you know, it, it – it, I mean it's, it's so strange because it, to me, this song for me is always a, a, a like a, 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 an uplifting, um, energetic – um, get up and go. Like if you, to me, I, I always see it as like if you're faced with obstacles, you know, you can work hard and overcome them. You just keep going. Um, now that's kind of interesting. Listening to the the the, the full the full album, album version version uh, because I grew up, you know, with the radio here in the three minute yeah, and forty exactly, second version exactly. instead of five minute and forty. And this version, <laughs> you know, as I said, I'm like, wow, this is a lot more erotic than I remembered when I was eight <laughs> years old. <laughs> well, you may have just been selectively hearing what made sense to you. Yeah, too. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so it, it just. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, and it's definitely the kind of song that, you know, it, while it doesn't necessarily remind me of any one particular place, it definitely reminds me of my dad a lot. Um, you know, the '80s and my dad. You know, I, I was very much. We spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, he <laughs> he loved watching like those crazy '80s movies. Oh yeah. Um, I remember when. Uh, so New Year's, we went out as a family and um, Spies Like Us was in a theater <laughs> and Amadeus was in a theater. My mother, which, who, you she know. She went over and, and saw Amadeus. And, and of course, you know, the, fam- the plan was we were going to – and a lot of the old school Fort Myers, South Fort Myers remember this because we lived in Principia. Right oh, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. I knew across people who lived Lake. in there. Yeah. And um, we went to Dino's Pizza uh-huh. right, acro- right in front of uh, South Point Cinema. Uh-huh. Um, Before it was a $1.50 theater. It, exactly. And <laughs> We walked, you know, we walked from our house, we walked over to Dino's, and we, you know, walked over to South Point. So the plan was to go to see Amadeus, which, you know, my mother culture, you know, instilled some culture in the kids. My dad uh, <laughs> said, uh, he said, no, I'm going to see uh, Spies Like Us. And I, in that moment, you know, this was like a pivotal moment in my life. I was like, can I be the good little cultured boy, go with mom you, you have and my to brother and see Amadeus? Or it sounds like my dad's going to see this really cool movie with like Chevy Chase that I think is going to be funny that I have no business seeing at seven years old. <laughs> but somehow dad's going to let me go. So, you know, uh, we went in and seeing it and it was an amazing movie. It was such, so funny. It delights and, me to imagine your dad loving Spies Like Us. I oh, mean, we, it delights me. Our favorite film to watch was um, Raising Arizona. He, he – my dad – I mean, he just said it's a piece of Americana. He said, "I don't care who you are. That if you want to tell somebody about America, you have to watch that movie right there." We his favorite line, you know, is, is Holly into funny shapes. Holly, <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you figure circular's funny, uh, you know. No, it was, you know, Holly Hunter's famous. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell. You know, I mean, he 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 would just sometimes say that around the house. You know, I mean, we we. That one coming to America, I'm gonna get you, sucker! Like, I mean, these are these are films that I, you know, I feel like a lot of people, you know, who knew my dad, you always knew him as just absolutely, the, the yeah. This is definitely laying down the a... law, and da, 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 da. but they, <laughs> oh, little did they know. Oh, that's hilarious! When was the last time you did karaoke? 
Um, I do karaoke often. Oh yeah, uh, I do. I. Uh, What's I, your go-to? Mm, my go-tos. Go- well, <laughs> see, so I have a whole. We're yes. on another whole list now. <laughs> I've got a whole other list. Now you know we start off with some Bob Seger. You know, maybe some turn the page, warm up, warm up those vocal cords, do something fun like Fat Bottom Girls, um, and um, you, you know, do then Queen once the, at karaoke, of course, like <laughs> of course, because nobody's really. Like, you know, hey, look, Fat Bottom Girls is an awesome song. Hey, yeah. And nobody sees it coming. Oh, yeah. And I always like to I always like to throw people a curveball. And the other great curveball song I love to sing is I love to sing Tim McGraw um, because there's always somebody in the audience. Always. It does. I've done this here in Fort Myers. I've done this in Los Angeles when I lived in L.A. There's always somebody who comes up to me after a Tim McGraw song just so confused saying, you sound just like him, but, 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 and I'm like, but what? <laughs> you know, and uh, I, 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 you know, I used to sing as a child. I sang in church choir. Okay. Um, okay. I, I ended, I took voice lessons as an adult. I'm going to put in a plug for, uh, for Tara, my voice teacher out in Los Angeles. She's actually in Montrose, which is, uh, outside of Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And her, um, her music school, the Hummingbird Conservatory. She's amazing. I mean, I'm going to tell you this quick story. She's amazing because I was taking singing lessons from Tara while she was just starting her business. Um, and, you know, I was 30, whatever, five or, you know, however, and her other clients were like 11 and 13. And I was in a recital and everything. You know, I'm 35 <laughs> years old in my suit. The next girl singing was 11. The next girl was like 15 or something. And, um, but I was, you know, I, I prepared the year and had my songs. And, and so what was funny at the end of it, though, is because, you know, there were probably like 20 people there. It was like every, their mothers and uncles and cousins and whoever. And, and then me, this guy. And so this one older lady who I think was the grandmother of one of the other girls singing comes up to me. I don't know to say something, but she, I'm just caught up in the moment. So I end up hugging her as well. <laughs> As well, hey, it's a great moment. We all did great in our recital. You know, uh, when I asked uh, our mutual friend Amy where uh, the question of uh, when was the last time you did karaoke, she said four hours ago. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. <laughs> Which was funny because it was like five fifteen in the afternoon on a Saturday. Yeah, so, that was pretty you know. accurate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so dancing, does dancing fit into your life? It does. I enjoy dancing. Um, I know people who are listening to this who have had the joy of seeing me at a wedding or maybe even invited me to their wedding knows very well that I enjoy dancing because I will dance with anyone and everyone, including grandma. Grandma doesn't get a pass. She's always one of the first people that I get on the dance floor. So yeah, I I, I do enjoy dancing. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to your second song. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so the second song is by Smashing Pumpkins, mm-hmm. 1979 from their album Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. Uh, you know, this song, I remember, still remember buying this album. Yeah. Exactly. I bought this album from the old, like, it's like an old little, excuse me, used buy and sell record store on um, Cypress Lake Drive by 41. It's now like a, a like a Japanese restaurant or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. But yeah, I, I still remember that the night... Because it was the day it came out, <laughs> I bought it that night because I was so excited for this album. Um, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, um, their previous album—well, not their previous album, but the, their previous larger commercial success, Disarm. Um, 
you know, I'm sorry, Siamese Stream with Disarm and, and a lot of Rocket and a lot of other great, you know, Today, um, all those great songs on that. So I was I was really geared up. And then I knew, you know, it was going to be a double CD set. Um, and again, you know, this is even, <laughs> this is amazing. Like I said, li- I la- listened last night. It's a double CD set and you can press play on disc one. And even at 16 when I bought this album, I would just go through the first disc <laughs> Finish it, take it out, put in the second. And, you know, there's some, I mean, Smashing Pumpkin, there are some gnarly songs on there. Yeah. But because groups were so used to making albums, they all fit. Right. I mean, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't hand somebody this album and, and, and tell them start off with one of the, you kind of, and, and because they're albums, the gnarlier songs are like tracks 10, 11. I mean, they work you up to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't just kind of clobber you over the head. And, you know, the other thing, a little thing about technology that's kind of weird too is introductions in albums. So like when you use vinyl, even though I didn't – I am i won't say I'm, I'm too young for vinyl. I just – technologically speaking, we didn't have vinyl in my house. We right. just listened to the radio and tapes and then bought CDs when I had my own money. Um, but even on CDs, like back in the 90s, you had intro tracks that you couldn't necessarily skip. And that you now kind of discover with Spotify and all these other, you know, online. You're like, oh, that's a whole other track. I thought that was just the yeah, yeah. beginning of this song. And so, "Melancholy and Infinite Sadness" is an excellent example because the opening, the intro, which is titled "Melancholy," you know, really is about two minutes forty five seconds that that leads you into "Tonight Tonight," which was a big commercial hit for them. Um, if they came out with this album today, you would never hear that intro. Right. But it's strange to me now to hear Two Night Tonight without that intro. Right. So because I know there's there's a good and, and the intro is beautiful. I mean it's a it's really a piece of 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 of, of symphonic music that was written to help ease you into yeah, put you in the right mindset. The rock right. and roll of the album. Right. Which I think is one of the genius things about the album. It starts with a piece of symphonic music. And, and it's like a hard rock album. I mean, it's, it's wild. You know, I, until I uh, looked it up to put it on this script so I could read it to you, I didn't realize that the title of the album was Melon Space Kali. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was never a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, so I, I Melon, never... Melon, M-E-L-L-O-N. Oh, and Kali, yeah. Kali, C-O-L-L-I-E. Yeah. So then you can really start to look in the meaning of... You know, are they just talking about the melon as a fruit? And then obviously if we think of melon as a fruit that's outside of the meaning of fruit, our first thought goes to melon as referring to head, right? right. And then collies, C-O-L-L-I, you know, the dog, not, you know, the one word melancholy as in right. sadness. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you're thinking when you first say, oh, melancholy, infinite, wow, this guy's really, 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 really sad. Yeah, so yeah. You're like, wait a minute. No, I, I, I couldn't believe my eyes when I pulled mm-hmm, it up on mm-hmm. the screen. Yeah. Okay, well, let's hear it. This is uh, 1979 by the Smashing Pumpkins from their 1996 album, Melon, Collie, and the Infinite Sadness. You're listening to Three Song Stories. It's biography through music. Watching you uh, listen to that, it was like you had your eyes closed and it was like viscerally pleasing to you. I could just see it. It was. It was. It was. I, um, <clears throat> you know, that song... Yeah, man. You know, I think that song, um, I think, was widely popular for a number of reasons. I think, you know, obviously commercially, it's a great song. But you know, if you really, you know, pay attention to the words, 
um, you know, they're really talking about kind of like that outsider culture, which we saw beginning to emerge in the 90s. Um, you know, obviously, I, I'd say it's weird to say this, but the mainstream kind of leader of that, I guess, arguably could have been Kurt Cobain. Um, and, you know, Smashing Pumpkins was along in, in that same vein. Sure. Um, and I think what 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 is so important about music is that, you know, it speaks to universal truths. And this song is speaking to that universal truth of teenage angst, but it's speaking to it in the in the sense of that that was relevant to the end of the twentieth century, the end of the millennia. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were here. We were. I mean, <laughs> you know, finishing high school. Um, some of us going to college. Some of us going to work. Some of us going to the army. Some of us, most of us, not really knowing. Well, really, none of us really knowing what was what was going to happen in the future. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's a sense that I think most high school kids have. But, you know, this is a time in our history where we were just beginning to see the explosion of the internet. Right. Um, we're just beginning to see technology changing the face of our existence right. in a way that yeah, has big, never big, been seen in history. A big leap history. forward yeah. from the increments from so before. So for us, on some sort of subconscious level, we were like, we're going to be the ones in charge of this ridiculousness, you know? So it's, so it's, it's kind of almost on this very deep level, having this feeling of there's this huge wave coming at you and you don't know what you're going to do about it. But then also kind of on the surface level, there's that, you know, Hey, I'm a kid. I still want to have fun. And you know, which, which I think, you know, you can see that in the beat of the song, in the action, in the music of the song. You know, it's a very kind of upbeat. You know, I mean, I mean, when you said you were watching, I, I was taken right back to senior year. You know, after school, going to a friend's house, beach week. You know, like all those. You know, going out to Conrad Kiesel's fishing shack in Pine Island. I Sound, knew like the kind of the Kiesels. All that, yeah, all <laughs> that crazy stuff you do when you're a teenager. And you've kind of <clears> – but not just a teenager. Like you're a senior. So it's like you've finished all the things that you, you're supposed to kind of do. You're almost graduating or you've just graduated. You've got that window of anything Yeah, goes. of like you're kind of an adult. Yeah. You can do a lot of stuff but you don't really have any responsibility. I mean it, it's, a, it's, it's a heady time. Hmm. Do you have a favorite band? Um, like you mean of like all time? Yeah. Oh, man. Like, oh, this is really um, okay. If I had to pick a favorite group, a group where I probably know, you know, ninety nine percent of all the words of all the songs they've ever written, uh, Indigo Girls. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I know. It's it's. It, you said eclectic yeah. earlier in this I, conversation. Yeah, I did. I did. And you know, I have. I have. I've listened to them. I've loved them since I was fifteen. Have you seen them um, live? I, I had an opportunity to see them live once in Santa Monica, but I had to go to my friend Emma Swashay's birthday at the Hollywood Bowl to see um, Harold and Bell. I don't know. It's a group. Harold and Bell. I don't know. It's some. It's 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 a group. It's a group. A lot of people like them. Not my cup of tea. My friend's birthday. So no. Well, you were comments. doing the right thing for your right friend. Thing. I was doing the right thing. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite concert experience of the ones that you've had? Oh man, that's that's a great. I, you know, I don't go to a lot of concerts. I'm I'm very with music. I'm very I'm a private person with music. I I 
Um, I love music. I love all different kinds of music. I love finding music in different places. Um, so I don't really, I don't really concerts. And you know, I'm 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 definitely a fan of of, of studio music, which is interesting because it's a seg- that's kind of a little bit of a segue into my third song, where which is which. One of the – well, the featured artist on, on my third song is Lauren Hill. Mm-hmm. And Lauren Hill – OK. So this goes back to your other question about the album that didn't make the cut, that could have made the cut um, or a song. Right, right. Um, it would have been one of Lauren Hill's songs <laughs> okay. um, from The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Like that album, which came out in 1999, I mean it's 20 years later or 98, I think. 20 years later, it's still – Mind-blowing, just amazing, start to finish, musically, the message, masterful. But she's not exactly the person you want to see in concert. And only because I've heard from friends of mine who've paid to go see her several times, she shows up like three hours late when she does, like the songs don't resemble anything. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a studio and then there's a concert, but, uh, you know, she does like weird renditions. Yeah, and you're <laughs> so, not into that. Yeah, yeah I'm not. And I just don't, I just don't want to be in that position. I don't want to go to a concert and, you know. Now, when I saw Neon Indian in Beijing, um, that was more, that was just more of a show. That was like a show at a little club. Um, that was absolutely amazing because you know China doesn't really do American music. Um, and this well, that's is what I was going to ask. I mean, yeah. I, w- I wanted to pick your brain about what the musical stylings and scene is like there for for you, and, yeah, and how long yeah. were you there? So I was in I was in Beijing for a year, and um, was working for an American company over there, an education company, and um, I got to I didn't know any Chinese when I moved there. Uh, I was recruited for the job. Most of my most of my employees and and Co-workers, you know, the company, like I'd say 60 percent Chinese, 40 percent American. Um, so, I mean, English was spoken at work. Sure. But because I was head of my division, I sat through literally four hours of meetings all in Chinese every day. Um, so I, I learned some and, you know, all that. But when I thought about the music industry there, um, they have their own thing. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, my, you know, I mentioned Chromio. Um, my buddy, Kevin Kosher, used to be their manager and I, and I talked to him about this before I went over there. I was like, hey, you know, you should, are you guys – would you guys come over there? Well, she, he wasn't working with them then. But he said no and he explained to me. He said, you know, China does their own thing because most of the American groups are big in Japan or they're big in Vietnam or they're big in Thailand. And well, what are the two things that link them? Oh, well, because that's where American military bases are. Oh, never had an American military yeah, base yeah, in China. Yeah, yeah, that's so you've got one point seven billion people who 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 have only just recently been exposed to American music, whereas in Japan, and hey, they're man. being exposed to American music because of technology and the internet. <laughs> yeah, now not because it's of boots on yeah. the ground, literally. Well, partly, I mean, because they do control the internet. Then. Yeah, well, I mean, they shut it off. Like when they for two weeks in March two thousand sixteen. Didn't matter if you had a VPN or what. I mean, they just they just whoop for those two weeks. I couldn't use Google. I couldn't use Facebook. I couldn't get on anything that I could get on with a VPN. What did that feel like for someone who by then was totally used to total connectivity? Was that kind of shocking? Um, There's a lot of shocking things about China. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of shocking things, and the, the most shocking thing about China, which I really. Wish I could impress upon my friends here who've never been the smell in Beijing. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's just got to be a technology where you can like tell people, describe to people the smells, but that's a whole other 
Is it is it is it is it is it the pollution side of the smell? Or yeah, is it it's the- pollution. I mean, it's a pollution. Beijing is a city with twenty five million people. Yeah, um, pollution. And when I say Americans don't grasp, Americans mention smog. They mention. I'm like Americans do not know what smog is. On a good day. Okay, I didn't have to wear a mask, and the pollution was five times the worst pollution yep. in America. Right, right. And that's a good day. Yeah, that was bad that days, was clear day. Oh yeah, bad days. I was on the twenty seventh floor of a building. I could not see the high rise next to me and the alley across from us. I heard a, a, a an interview on public radio at some point over the past year, and they were asking somebody who was an exchange student from China who had come here for the first time, and he his first impression was how blue the sky was. Mm-hmm. Like he couldn't mm-hmm. believe the sky was that blue because he had he would, he had grown up in whether Beijing or one Beijing or one mm-hmm. of the big cities, and I thought that yeah. was really kind of an interesting way to crystallize. Yeah. No, the it difference. was it was interesting because when I went there in 2015, the um, the recession just started. So the factories were still up and running, but by the time winter hit, the recession was in full swing and the factories had stopped. So what was kind of interesting is that in, in the winter in Beijing, <clears throat> Beijing is in a big – it's like a bowl surrounded by mountains. So when those, when those factories are pumping all that smoke, it just gets trapped. But in the winter – um, because there's just because we're on just high plain and it's very very cold but very very dry and there's a lot of wind you know so there while there's a lot of pollution that hangs above the top that lower level sometimes the the wind kind of blows it through well as the recession got worse and the factory shut down we actually had really nice days in the in the in the in the spring of 2016 but I had to remind myself. Oh wait, that's because there's a recession. Factories haven't been running for like a week or something like that. And because there's there's like, you know, people crowding into the education industry. So like I had to kind of adjust in my job because, you know, in China it's a bit different from America where, you know, if you were a factory worker and your factory shut down, you know, you would just kind of pivot the word they like to say today, put up a sign on a door and say, "Hey, I'm an education consultant. Hmm. I help your kid get into school in America." And you know they'll they'll they will copy everything they see. Like China's wild. I mean, it is the wild, wild west. It is it it, it is the most capitalist place I've ever say, been it, to. It's in so my life. ironically the opposite. Is, oh of, yeah, yeah, it is. It is completely opposite from what most Americans who've never been there think. Um, money talks and BS walks. Um, you know, I mean, businesses. We would have to be careful about. You know, we would have. Um, you know, presentations where American schools would come to our office, do a presentation for prospective families. But we would have to be very careful about who we would invite to the office, who we would let in because other agents would come to our office, take pictures and replicate it somewhere else in town. I mean, that's China. Like they they don't – they – I mean, and there's no better business bureau. <laughs> there's right. no yeah. agency to stop And there's anybody. clearly no Clean Air Act. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's – I mean, it is a free-for-all. You have to be quick, smart – and whatever it is that you're doing, you know, just and you can make money. Keep keep doing that. Just kind of try to do it better. Hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they they as a culture, I learned I learned so much, you know, about not just Chinese culture, but perspectives and culture and how you, how you view world events. You know, because when I got there, they were celebrating the 70th anniversary of defeating the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Of course, to us, we're like, yay. We won World War II. You know, to them, they're like, 
what? Like they they weren't even thinking anything about America or Normandy or any, you know they're talking about no the Japanese who've been oppressing us for like hundreds of years and we finally beat them. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> to which most Americans have no idea yeah, yeah. the history between Japan and China. No idea. So yeah, but musically though, <laughs> getting back to the music, the most fascinating thing was I I had a friend who one of my roommates was a Harvard grad student studying ancient Chinese. So he had his grad student circle of friends and we would go to dinner once a week. And one of his friends was studying um, Chinese opera. So I got to talk to her about Chinese opera. Um, now, musically, not a fan of Chinese opera. I can appreciate what they're doing, just not a fan. So I, it was great to talk to her about and ask her all these different questions and and learn a bit more and, you know, from my experience, I never – because, you know, I didn't speak any Chinese, we didn't have it like a – I mean we had a television but it wasn't connected to, you know, cable television or anything right. like that. So I was not exposed to Chinese music very regularly. Um, I had to kind of seek it out, which I did like with my friend with the Chinese. She invited me to the Chinese opera, which I respectfully declined because I knew I would not be able to survive <laughs> <laughs> but like I heard, you know, she, she had she would send me clips of things and and um and that, stuff like that. But that gets me to another kind of interesting technology thing. Um, I'm kind of a I'm 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 old school in that when I buy something, I take care of it and I keep it forever. That's not good for the technological age because they obviously make things to be disposable. Correct. Yeah. Um, when I when I got to China in 2015. I still had my first edition iPod uh-huh. that held some crazy amount, like 180 gigs or something crazy like that, right? Um, and I remember I got that iPod for Christmas in 2000, I think it was five, I want to say. Um, so I I'd had this thing for 10 years. Now, being a pack rat helped me because I get to China and obviously I'm in China. I have no cell service. There's no, you know, no Wi-Fi. I don't read Chinese. So I can't, you know, I don't have a phone. I eventually, I got a phone and I got like some Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. But then again, what I realized was it's a lot easier for me and a lot cheaper to walk around with my little iPod that's got these hundred gigs of memory and music on it, you know, yeah. which was my first iPod. My 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 um <laughs> my coworker who was this millennium millennial. Literally picked it up and was like, what is this? I said, what do you mean? It's an iPod. I said, what do you mean? Because, you know, it was – there were like – they looked – they were bigger than like a baseball yeah. card and had yeah, like a yeah. little screen on it. Yeah. It was a pretty big device. And he turned it over it and he looked heft. at it. And, it had, yeah, it had you, a heft. You probably like you could still hold it and it. hold it in your hand. I got big hands. You can feel it like, like a real thing. And um, he turned it over and said 120 gig. He's like, that's like an operating system. <laughs> It's like, yeah, and it's almost completely full. He's like, really? You have that much music on there? And I was like, yes, yes, I do. And so it served me um, being in Beijing. So when I would walk around in Beijing to not hear the the city noise and a lot of Chinese that I didn't understand anyway, I would just listen to music. And so even though – this loops back to your question about the internet. Even though I was in a place where they could shut off the internet – um, even when I had the internet, it was still very spotty. It's not like America where I've got internet everywhere unless I'm in some sort of field. I mean I was in the middle of the largest city in the country and routinely in my apartment, I would just be like, oh, wait, there wait it goes. for it, wait for it. 
you know, trying to watch something on Netflix. Are you kidding me? It was like mm-hmm. an hour long show. It would take you two hours because you're just kind of waiting for – so having that iPod and having that stored music in China was huge. It was your lifeline. Yes. Well, let's uh, move on to your last song. I think I learned more about modern Chinese culture during the last 10 minutes than right? I knew before that. That's right? for sure. It's cool. Um, what's your last song? Oh, man. My last song is by Nas um, and it's entitled If I Ruled the World. Uh, this – as I mentioned before, um, Lauren Hill is, is on this track, which is amazing. I mean you know, this track – this actually came out when I was 18, um, 18 or 19. Um, and I think it was my freshman year in college. And again, dovetailing from um, you know the Smashing Pumpkins, you know what they were kind of getting at—that teenage angst and being on the precipice of this, you know, new world of technology. Um, there's that feeling in that, but it this song actually looks more towards the past about. Black people's experience here in America, and looking towards the future, and it's very it's a it's a very hopeful song. You know, in the title, "If I Ruled the World," um, and 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 I picked this song because it's again one of those songs. When I hear it, it's just oh, I mean that 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 the feeling of hope, you know, of for the future, and 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 and, and doing better. You know, not just for yourself, but for your community and for the world around you. Um, that's what the song taps into. And again, it's on that album, Illmatic, where you can just, hey, f- track one and let it run. Just let it go. And, and so I, I, I don't think that's an accident that every single one of these songs is on an album where you can listen to. And that the, the, the singer featured on the third song also has, yeah. you know, an album. It, it just, it, it, I, you know, I don't think those are, I don't think those are accidents. All right. Well, this is uh, this is if I ruled the world by Na- Nas. I know I'm so musically not inclined that I didn't. Nas. Yes. Nas. This is if I ruled the world by Nas from the 1996 album. It is written. You're listening to Three Song Stories. If I ruled the world, what would uh, we've asked this question before? Like, what would your younger self think of you now? What would your 18 year old self um, think of you now? And what would your 18-year-old self think of the world now through the lens of that song as you heard it then? <clears throat> wow. Wow. Um, Throwing it down. That is an amazing question. I'm an introspective person and I have never contemplated that until this moment. Wow. Um, my 18-year-old self – how would my 18-year-old self see the world today? Well, let's start with how would your 18-year-old self think about how you, how you, where you've turned out, what you're doing in the I world, like, like I, the I, person I, you are, the, the life you live, the, the, the jobs you've had. My, the, my 18-year-old self would be really proud, would, would, be, really, would be really proud um, and really you know, kind of amazed, um, mainly because um, – you know, and I kind of touched on this a little bit – with what kind of Kurt Cobain and Smashing Pumpkins were going after, it's just like you know. I mean, it's it's really rebelling against the system, um, and I think that, um, and not just as an overall system, but like even expectations that one might get from society, family, you know, friends, whatever that is, and and you know, Nas is talking about that here in the song. You know, I mean, you know, 
going against those expectations really about society and what society ex- um, not necessarily expects, but what what society typically prejudges of a lot of black men. You know, he starts off talking about you know being arrested, you know, for marijuana use. You know, I, I, it's funny listening to the song. You know, my eighteen year old self listening to the song now. You know, that first line. You know, imagine walking down the street, you know, smoking grass without being hassled by the police. Hey, I, I witnessed I witnessed that in Santa Monica in 2006 when I was teaching um, and coaching softball and we used a local park. And there's a guy sitting on a bench smoking the fattest joint you've ever seen at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I saw a patrolman literally walk past him. And you said and that was 2006. That's, this was 2006. And we've rolled a lot, lot, lot farther down. And the we've road gotten since a lot then. farther yeah. <laughs> since. And I, I mean, I was standing there, mouth agape, like, did this just happen? Um, so, I mean, obviously, you know, that's, that's Santa Monica. It's California. It, obviously, Nas was speaking specifically about New York. Um, if you're up on your current events, you know, for, um, in the governor's race, you know, Cynthia Nixon has made it a, a center point of her campaign, you know, to legalize medical cannabis. Um, and also she's talked about, you know, a form of, um, you know, access for minorities to cash in on legalizing something that they have been disproportionately sent to prison, you know, and, um, you know, my 18 year old self, you know, being the son of the first black judge in Southwest Florida knew all too well how this legal system preys on black men because I saw it firsthand. And I knew that I, I knew at 18 that I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where I was to some extent protected from that, not just because not of my entirely. choices. And, yeah. yeah, not because of my choices and my parents and you know, having good grades and all that. It's because my father actually, because he was a judge, had to fight that directly. I mean, we, man, I can tell you stories about Lee County Sheriff's deputies stalking me as a teenager for years hmm. because I was a black guy who had the nerve to be friends with a white girl who lived across the street from him. Hmm. Okay? So – I, I was very aware of that at 18. I was also aware of, you know, that same year, you may not remember, but that's also the year of Lords of Chaos. No, oh, I remember. You know? um, I wanted I to ask the, you that. I, I wanted you to bring it up. You know, hey, I was the same age yeah. as, as Foster. Yeah. You know, that he was, I hear, just as intelligent, had opportunities to go to great colleges and universities, but chose to, you know, get a group of kids together, run a gang, and go out and commit robberies and mayhem and murder. What was that like? You know, your dad uh, presided over that case. What was yes. that like for you to, to see it through, you know, your dad's eyes and the, the press and all the things? Because in many ways, it was a precursor of the things sure. we're seeing now. Teen thrill killers. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> practically, I didn't even know it was happening. You know, my father was such an amazing judge that – that entire case, and this is you know Kevin Foster. That entire case lasted five or six days, start to finish. Um, Court TV. I remember calling him that Friday during the trial and saying, "Oh, we're going to come down and Monday and Tuesday and record." And you know, back then, Court TV was the big. You know, we didn't have all these cable news shows, right? Right. Um, and my dad said to them, you better hurry up because this trial is going to be over on Monday. They're like, isn't this a capital case? And he had gone through all 14 prosecution witnesses on Thursday. Prosecution, prosecution rested their case in like a day and a half. Hmm. You know, he was very much, um, you know, about being fair and speedy justice and saying, you know, this jury, they've got jobs. They've got families. They don't need to be here all day and for weeks on end and 
So anyway, but um, but that was the practical when it happened. What a lot of people don't realize is, you know, a couple years after that, after he was convicted um, and sentenced uh, to death, and he's still on death row today. Um, you know, Foster then tried to murder my dad and me and my family. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, he, you know, he tried to kill kill us and, and the prosecutor and his family. This was actually it all came to a head Fourth of July weekend. Two. No, nineteen ninety nine, um, or ninety eight. No, it was ninety eight. July Fourth weekend, nineteen ninety eight. Uh, he had conspired with his mother. She bought the weapons. Um, the hitman that he hired was actually a reporter who worked for NBC who'd been covering the case and had visited Foster in prison over 300 times and had pretty much been brainwashed into carrying out this hit. Thankfully, at some point, he thought, you know, thought better, better of, it of it and turned himself into the, the police. But um, uh, there, this, will, this will sound strange, but there's actually a funny side to that story. I mean, people say, is there a funny side to having somebody put a hit on you and almost kill you? Usually not. But so my father loved to fish. I mean, a lot of people know that he loved to fish. I mean, this man, he loved fishing. Um, I remember the day that – well, the weekend, that 4th of July weekend when this all went down, dad was going fishing and I remember seeing him in the kitchen that morning and he just casually says – this is how dad was. He just casually says, there's somebody out trying to kill us, so uh, be aware. I'm going fishing. I mean almost word for word. That's what he said. At like 8 o'clock, I'm like, What? And so I'm like, okay, dad, thanks. You know, I, you know, I'm like 20, you know, 21 years old, something like that. So I mean, it's not like I'm a little kid, but it's just yeah, good to know. And when your dad is the only black judge in Southwest Florida, this isn't the first time people have tried to kill us for being black. I mean, let's be real. This is actually this is about now the fourth time in my life, and I'm only 20 years old. Um, dad goes fishing with uh, a local lawyer, John Mills. They'd gone fishing hundreds of times. Now I only heard this story at my dad's. Uh, memorial service. John Mills, from his side, he's saying, well, you know, we went out fishing. We're out on the boat. The judge gets this call. And all I hear is the judge go, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. Okay. And he says, now the judge, you know, he loves fishing. He, he doesn't take phone calls fishing. So I knew this was something important. So John says, he asks him, the judge, well, who is that? He says, oh, you know, see, uh, Police, uh, what do they want? Don't they know it's your day off? It's Fourth of July weekend. You're out here fishing. Well, you know, some guy they're trying to kill me, and uh, they they caught them all, and it's all right. To which John Mills says, "Wait, wait, someone's out there trying to kill you, and you out here on this little boat with me? <laughs> <laughs> you put me in danger." Exactly. And Dad is like, "I wanted to go fishing," and, it, and that's how he went. He was like, "I wanted to go fishing." <laughs> And John Mills died laughing. He was like, "Wow, okay." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean that 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 trial, that whole case, um, you know, was 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 devastating to this area. Yeah, because I I I know what gets lost in all of that. You know, everybody focusing on these gang of kids and you know all the stuff they did. You know, burning down the Coca Cola bottling company, yeah. yeah, and 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 all the stuff. But what what gets lost in all of this, and even the remembrances. And I don't know if if you saw this, but last summer there was an article 
um, with Derek Shields pleading to get out because he's now saying that um, Foster put him up to it and he was really scared. He was one of the accomplices. Yeah. yeah. And and so, mm, right, okay, 20 years later, you're now the victim, okay? But what's lost in that is that they murdered a teacher. Yeah. They murdered a teacher. Yeah, at Riverdale, right? Yes, they went to Mark Schwebe's house. Mm -hmm. And because one of them was in band and they knew him, knocked on his door, used that trust to lure him to his death and shot him in the face with a shotgun at point blank range. You know, I, like I said, I've been in education my entire life, mainly because you know, I, I kind of give the short answer. It's the family business. A lot of people know, you know, my father was a judge, but my mother, you know, retired vice president, uh, Florida Gulf Coast. My grandmother was a school teacher. I have several aunts and uncles who were teachers. You know, we can go back generations for an education. And I, I can't, I can't think of any greater breach of trust, you know, mm-hmm. than to go to your teacher. That, that just is vile. It's absolutely vile. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I just have one last question for you. What is a song that you will always turn off if it comes on the radio and why? Does it have to be good or bad? <laughs> that's such a For qu- any oh, reason. Man, for that's any such a reason. question. It's layered. It's a layered question. It's such a question. There's really only one song that – I mean, you know, most music I like. Most music, even if I don't like it, I'll tolerate. Like there, but there's one song that I – it took me years before I could listen to it. Um, and now I won't listen to it because of, you know, just political reasons. <laughs> but um, it's called The Same Girl by R. Kelly and um, just like another guy in it. But – the reason why is because the year that my father passed away that summer when I was taking him to chemotherapy every day, um, you know, top 40 plays, and especially during the summer, the same songs play over and over and over again. Uh, <laughs> and because, you know, my mom was working, my brother's working, I had moved back home to take care of dad. And, and um, this radio, the same girl, the song was playing on the radio that summer. One day as we were coming home from chemotherapy – in as you know, cancer patients will tell you, you, know, you get chemo brain, and you'll forget things. I mean, you, you, I mean that 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 was one of the most difficult things having to nurse my dad through his illness. Is that a man who his whole entire job was listening to arguments and listening to details and remembering everything? I mean, he would forget things after a couple minutes. So that's why. It was kind of amazing in this moment where he kind of perks up one day. We're riding home and he says, you know, the song, the same girl is on the radio. And he says, wait a minute. They're dating the same girl. <laughs> I was like, yeah, dad, that's what a song is called. Same girl. And he was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was this moment where he realized <laughs> and he's just like, I can't believe it. <laughs> And he just really had this visceral reaction, you know. And I was just kind of, yeah. I mean, this is kind of crazy stuff they play on the radio. Like, yeah, 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 whatever. But he just had that moment of clarity and that visceral reaction, and it just tickled me to death. I just couldn't. I was like, yeah, you're right. This is ridiculous. Um, and I tell you, you know, and, and Dad passed away in 2007. And I tell you, I don't. It it took almost probably 10 years before. You know, I mean, that song would come. I, nope, can't hear that. I just can't. 
you know, so, but yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts? Um, final thoughts. You know, my, my only, only just, just a couple, another group that you'd met or you'd asked about albums and everything. And just thinking about that, my last song with Nas, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Outkast, uh-huh. um, because Outkast, I, I think it's interesting because Nas is because I, you know, was at Princeton University in New Jersey. So it was kind of like that segue into like Northeastern rap and like, you know, obviously Biggie was huge, but like, you know, we didn't, they had Hot 97 up there out of New York. We don't have stations like that down here. And I was like, what? So I'm like hearing all this Northeast stuff and it's like, whoa, you know, but, but, um, you know, down here it was, you know, ATLians, like Outcast, like all that, just Outcast. Like I, I got to give a plug to Outcast and I definitely got to give a plug to uh, their producer, Midnight Black, who I know in, in Atlanta, and my buddy Jeff Allen, who works with him. Um, they're amazing. The Dungeon Crew. Um, I've been to the Dungeon, so that's awesome. Well, cool. I uh, I want to thank my guest, Justin Anderson, is a Fort Myers native. Uh, he's holder of a bunch of degrees, world traveler, and friend of a friend of mine. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great getting to know you today over these songs. Thanks so much for having me. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chen Kui is our show's producer, director, and co-creator. Tara Callaghan and Anna Bejarano produce our online content. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Today's episode was directed by Tara Salea, and our theme music was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Hey, listeners, we really want your song stories. If you've got a song that takes you back to a memory, record your story onto your phone. Send it to mysongstory at wgcu.org. We are running out of parting tunes, so want to get your voices and stories onto future episodes of Three Song Stories. For my parting tune this week, I'm going back to yesterday in the production booth of this studio. During Gulf Coast Live, which I produce with our co-creator Richard, we somehow got to talking about the way music used to be recorded versus the heavily produced efforts you hear a lot of these days. And that reminded me of a song by Ani DeFranco because of a line in it, which I recited for Richard. Well, this is one of the first songs that made my, at the time, probably 10-year-old daughter perk up her ears and get instantly hooked besides Moxie Fruvis, of course. Well, it's also the first song by her that caught my ear back in the late 90s, and besides Yesterday and a few years ago with Gwen, my story is not about this song necessarily, but about Ani herself. I was walking down the sidewalk in Manhattan in the early 2000s, and what do you know, but there she was, walking toward me with a purpose. She had an instantly recognizable bearing and stature and demeanor. I tried not to notice, but looked over and gave her a half-smile and a nod, which she returned as we passed, and it thrilled me because I just don't think she's cool. I know she's super cool. So this is the song Fuel by Ani DeFranco from her 1998 album Little Plastic Castle, which I highly recommend. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. You could send in your, your stub, your, check, your ticket stub, and get a check back. For your $10, you could get a refund. So I did that, and I got a check back from Led Zeppelin, and I didn't and you, frame and it. Cashed it. I yeah. cashed it. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's the great regret of my life.